1: Now Durante from canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is three CR eight five five on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important. The spirit of communities, the most important thing. So subscribe. And a
2: very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
3: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
2: trade in
4: is not wheat.
3: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
2: Solidarity forever!
4: And good morning, it's Annie and Kim. G'day, Kim, how are you? Good, it's just gorgeous this morning. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And uh, I mean, people are saying that uh, winter is uh, honours, but I still think that uh, Melbourne does autumn best.
5: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
4: It's lovely. Uh, well, what, what are we doing today? We're focusing on uh, Aboriginal struggle and Black struggle, really. Yeah,
5: the Black Lives Matter movement, Indigenous Lives Matter movement.
4: Yeah, and uh, I was definitely there last Friday, May the 1st, at the extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary event that uh, happened, the March. Were you there that time? You were there the, the March before, I know that.
5: Yeah, I was. I couldn't go this time because I had a um, class. Which was really boring.
4: <laughs> but uh, uh, as pe- I overheard people saying that uh, I replaced you this time, I was there, and uh, I heard people saying that uh, in fact there were more people at the march in uh, on May the first in the city in Melbourne. It uh, they did a, a an extraordinary uh, march around uh, a circle from. Uh, uh, the city near near the um town hall it was it started around that place that uh, corner of uh, Swanston and Collins and uh
5: near city square
4: near city square i think they're reclaiming city square
5: oh that would be lovely
4: wouldn't that be lovely and uh and then there was a, a, a extraordinary uh, circuit, cir- circle done from uh, uh Bourke Street Mall down to Flinders Street and then to the uh major uh Intersection of uh Swanston Street and uh, Flinders Street, and that 's where people congregated and The reason why I say it was an extraordinary uh a circle of a march was because there were slogans all the way through, and it was a mass a lot a massive amount of people, and it became swifter and swifter as <laughs> uh, people went along and uh, it was like people were streaming to the uh uh, to the centre of uh, Flinders and uh, Swanson Street, and then they, uh, everyone, including me, sat in a circle, and there was uh, Aboriginal dancers. There's welcome to country, but there was it was uh, an Aboriginal affair in the sense that uh, they uh, talked about the clan groups that actually belong to country here, and uh, there was this moment before they started where the young organisers, uh, uh, the women from War, uh, uh, Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, the woman said, tell those police to step back. (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody's in a circle and there's a large amount of people and there's a very, actually quite loose congregation of police behind them who looked a little bit like they didn't really know what they were there for because they weren't the, um, they weren't those, uh, uh, you know, the... The Ports kind uh, of riot cops. The riot cop yeah. people, they were the ordinary ones.
5: Darth Vader, Brigade. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's right. And so that she said, "Make a step back, take a step back. And <laughs> <laughs> it was like a reversal of roles. It was quite extraordinary, I'll have to say.
5: I know, we can do our own, you know, crowd control, thank you very much.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And then they did this business of... Um, uh, telling the media who were all there uh, taking photographs because it was a great photo uh, photo opportunity to uh, uh, respect their space. It, we want everybody to know what's going on, but uh, actually it's the real event that counts, not your pictures. And then I had a lovely, heartwarming sort of experience because uh, 3CR was uh, I was there recording, and uh, we'll hear that later on. Uh, uh, excerpts from that recording. And we have been playing bits and pieces from it all through the week. Uh, but uh, Giller, who's one of our um, broadcasters here for Precious Memories on, uh, I think it's Wednesdays, he said to me, uh, I was moving back because, you know, I saw myself as maybe, you know, in, interviewing. And he said, no, no, Annie, you're blackfellow black Radio. <laughs>
5: yeah. uh, it shows you how 3CR is different.
4: Yeah, 3CR is different. Anyway, moving right along. Stop the war on the poor. Fair go for pensioners, Age pensioners, unemployed people, single parents with their children. Vicious funding cuts to welfare, health and education. Join Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition and fight the cuts and fight for our rights. 11am, Wednesday the 20th of May, outside the State Library. Demand federal and state governments improve living standards, not attack them. Be outside the State Library of Victoria, 11am Wednesday the 28th of May, to stop the war on the poor. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is a 3CR supporter. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we're going to, as we were saying, we're going to focus on uh, a a black struggle and uh, how it connects to uh, the... uh, overarching uh, oppression of the capitalist system effectively mm.
5: and what lessons people can learn from people like Emory Douglas who were part of the 1960s radical wing of the civil rights movement then
4: that's right and so uh, and this was uh, an interview that we did uh, during um, Marxist 2015 that was uh, put on recently in uh, April and uh, Emory uh, Emory uh, uh, introduces himself so let's have a listen to what he's got to say
6: my name is Emery Douglas. I'm a former uh, member of the Black Panther Party. I was revolutionary artist and minister of culture.
5: Well, would you like to tell me how it is you came to be the uh, minister for culture in the Black Panther Party?
6: Well, that was a, a process. Um, initially, I was just a member of the Black Panther Party. Early uh, 19, January 1967, about three months after the start, uh, around, um, I say, April, May, uh when we began to develop the Black Panther Party publication, the Black Panther newspaper, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale had a vision of the paper, and they said I would be the revolutionary ar- artist, and eventually the Minister of Culture. And that would, uh, the Ministry of Culture came about in regards to when the party began to evolve and grow. So there were many uh, areas of responsibility that people could, who wanted to come and volunteer could come in under those different ministries and, and, and volunteer their services or skills. The whole concept of creating an arts
4: ministry means that uh, the Black Panther Party saw themselves in a totality, uh, that there was going to be a, a change of system, and did that play on your imagination when you were doing your work?
6: Well, what played on my imagination was the politics of the party. Uh, it was a reflection of the politics and an environment in which we were living in, the conditions that we were uh, resisting against, the oppression, all those things played a part in the artwork itself.
5: Why do you think it's so important to have revolutionary politics in activist movements and civil rights movements?
6: Well, revolution is about change, so the art should be a reflection of the politics and about that change as well, uh, interpreted through the artists, uh, what they see and what they feel, and express uh, in relationship to the politics about change.
4: No, I mean, it was an extremely difficult period of time and uh, the Black Panther Party was a a movement that was uh, uh, quite a direct attack on the mainstream uh, American concept of itself. Uh, How how did did you as an individual experience that uh, revolution in yourself?
6: Well, it was uh, it was an ongoing process. Uh, you you come up, you you experience it uh, from the beginning because of of being uh, just like many others, being victimized by the system and wanting to do something and wanting to make change, having fragmented ideals on how you can do that, and then you run into an organization such as Black Panther Party which is uh, doing something and you become a part of it and then you begin to become a part of that and become more determined in your, in your approach in regards to collectively working together to make change. So
4: how did uh, the, on a practical level, how did you finance your art, well, you know, like a newspaper costs money?
6: Well, in the beginning uh, we, uh, uh, we had uh, Panthers who did a lot of speaking engagements we did had panthers who had books that were being published, and we sold the paper, but only for 25 cents. <laughs> but at that time, the economy and the cost of living wasn't that high. Uh, we had, uh, and we were able to use our skills. That different people who came into the party uh, were had were savvy on survival, and so we were able to use those skills in relationship to uh, moving forward. And also, we had um, uh, support. From many from people who uh identified and supported the, the programs and what we were involved in
4: now america's a big place. Uh, how did you distribute your paper how where did it get to?
6: Oh, paper went all over the world. The paper initially it was limited uh, distribution, but at its height, it was over. It was 400,000 strong. Uh, The paper was. uh, We had 49 chapters and branches of the Black Panther Party. So every branch and chapter took uh, papers. You also had unions. You had teachers. You had workers. You had uh, people from the community, churches. All everyone who identified uh, in solidarity with us came in and bought papers or took papers as well. So and then we had distributions all over the uh, 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 outside with every major uh, revolutionary government around the around the world as well.
5: Did you realize that you were inspiring activists around the world? You know, including all nations and colors.
6: Well, I, I, we, we well we were being inspired too as well. You know, so it was a combination. It was you could see that people uh, identified what you were doing. So then you know you felt that there was uh, something. Uh, relevant, uh, that needed to be uh, continued to uh, try to uh, hold up that standard uh, and what people respected about what you were doing. And so in that context, uh, you were, uh, you, you look at it as being uh, in solidarity in relationship to what you were were sharing about uh, struggle and about change, revolutionary change.
5: Uh, at the opening night of Marxism 2015, um, we heard a story from Emin McCann about Uh, who's a Northern um, Ireland uh, civil rights activist about how uh, the kids there were so inspired by uh, what was happening with the Black Panther Party. Was that something that surprised you?
6: Uh, well, we were a youth movement. You have to understand the Black Panther Party was a youth movement. Uh, so uh, we were very young people. Uh, uh, you had uh, little Bobby Hutton, who was the very first Panther, Huey Newton, and Bobby Seale recruited. He was 15 and a half, 16 years of age, and they had to get a permission from his parents for him to join the Black Panther Party. And so the average age, 15, 16, 17, 18, I think I may have been about 21, going on 22, and Huey Newton was 23, and several other panthers were 28 and 29 and 30, and they were old folks of the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. So this was a youth movement that people identified with all across the the globe in many ways.
5: How did the Black Panther Party reach out or meet up with the working class struggle at the time?
6: Well, through the fact that we were always in solidarity. We, we uh, also were worked with... Uh, we had members who were in the unions who who uh, worked with us in the Black Panther Party. We also worked with the different organizations who were connected into the the Marxist and socialist organizations who were in solidarity with us as well. Uh, And we also reached out through the fact that we uh, were always involved with pickets uh, or outreach and things that were going on during that time. We even did a lot of stuff with Cesar Chavez and United Farm Workers during the day. We used to do some picketing in solidarity with, with them as well.
4: So the issue of race, like being black, and uh, did that trump the other issues that needed to be dealt with?
6: No, it didn't trump the other issues. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we work with anybody who, regardless of what their colour were, uh, excuse me, in the Black Panther Party, uh, we didn't uh, deal with the uh, issue of colour in the context of where uh, we was about to struggle and by transforming society in in that regard. So we didn't, we didn't get caught up in the uh, colour issue.
4: So really that was the mainstream demarcation?
6: Uh, yes, yes, in regards to calling us racist. We, you, 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 got all the, uh, you got the white left who uh, will always uh, rebuff that issue in the States because we have many allies. You have to understand that uh, when uh, Saddam Shakur... Uh, before she became a part of the Black Liberation Army, was a member of the Black Panther Party. You have to understand that Marilyn Buck, who was a white woman, was one of those who helped liberate her out of prison. And you had many other allies. If you had the uh, the uh, Student for Democratic Society, Abby Hawkman, and the Yippies. All those were our allies, and uh, we, uh, we ran Elgin Cleaver, Kathleen Cleaver, Hughie Newton for politics uh, uh, slates on, on the Peace and Freedom Party in the 1960s. So we've always in We've always been an allies and had allies beyond the black community.
5: I was wondering, what are some differences and similarities between uh, the Black Panther's struggle and the civil rights movement then and what's happening now with Ferguson in America?
6: Well, as much as things may change, some things are the same. It's not too much difference in that context because you just had – back then you had uh, uh, very high levels of frustration. That was one of the reasons why young people all across the country, even, uh, like myself, were trying to get in to see what they could do, respecting the civil rights movement and Dr. King, but at the same time there were those who just didn't want to turn the other cheek at that particular time. And, and so – um, you have the same thing today you have uh, all of, you have rampant police murder and uh, going across the country uh you just in march I just had a re, uh, report come out where over 100 uh, uh, folks and particularly black and brown were murdered in march of this year along by the police departments in the United States uh, uh, so you so you have the that same type of frustration that you had then you have going on now uh so the dynamic you still have a culture within the system that is still run by a cultural racism and bigotry that's at the core, that's no different than that 50, 60 years ago.
4: You know, uh, with the art that you produced in the newspaper, were you, uh, what did you learn? Uh, what, what were the things that uh, you knew worked and things that didn't? And on another level, were you illustrating the the stories that were coming out or were you creating the stories yourself?
6: Well, sometimes you were creating, based on what you observed, sometimes you were illustrating, but you were always interpreting, uh, giving an interpretation of, of the reality of what existed that in, in the way that you felt that it would be, try to have the best impact, uh, visual impact, in regards to uh, the community uh, getting the message across.
4: Now, there would have been a whole range of things that happened over the period of time that you were uh, producing the work and the newspaper was happening. And as Kim was saying, referring to what's going on at the moment, Black Lives Matter. Um, do you think that uh, the work that you guys did have helped to shape the uh, story that's being talked about today?
6: Well, I think it uh, has helped to uh, inspire, if you want to say shape, in that context, yes, today. Uh, many young people have been inspired by what we were did back in the 60s and, and uh, 70s. And uh, they're interested in the uh, aspects of how we organized and, and we were able to put things together in that respect. And so, yes, and the social programs and what have you.
5: Would you be able to describe what you consider your proudest moment as a member of the Black Panther Party or one of them?
6: <laughs> well, there were many, but uh I think you, you, you uh, when you begin to inform and to enlighten and to be able to share uh what you have with the community your gifts uh that in in the context of enlightening people and uh uh, I think uh, outreach with the social programs and the people t- beginning to talk about all power to the people and uh, wanting to uh, begin to be raise their consciousness about wanting change and beginning to challenge the system, I think those were some of the most uh, uh, important parts of uh, the organization itself, being able to uh, communicate a language to the community that they understood in a way that they would move forward and take actions.
4: So... D- there has been a step forward.
6: There's always a step forward, but there's always things are not in a straight line. So, you know, there's always a process of things going different kind of ways in life. Human nature has ups and downs and what have you. So, and you have, that's just for the pleasant, you have the unpleasant always going on. So you have those dynamics of, of challenge that always exists between the exploiter and the exploited.
4: So uh, you, uh, your, your crew did what you did, and then, as I say, you know, uh, one action causes a reaction. Mm-hmm. So, what did the uh, state do in order to curtail
6: your uh, effect? Well, we were c- got, became the considered uh, public enemy number one, and uh, we were by con- cornering tail counterintelligence program. So we were, they tried to discredit us and, uh, by any means necessary. They spent over, uh, two, over $20 million or more in regards to doing that uh, with misinformation campaigns. Uh, you had FBI agents who had, uh, folks infiltrate the party, criminal elements to just try to, and call conflict and confrontations, uh, and to try to create mistrust and distrust. Within the organization itself, they, um, they also, um, uh, forged, uh, letterheads of, uh, sending to those who supported our social programs, uh, in our name, uh, ex- stating that uh, we were threatening them and wanting more money, all these kinds of things, which was, we tried, we would explain to folks that that wasn't us, but it was the, uh, the, the police doing that, the FBI. You even have an FBI agent, uh, agent named Swearinger, uh, in 19, 19- uh, 1999 wrote a book about how he was a part of this. Is this uh, this uh, group within the FBI called Racial Matters, where you had to just like blacks in order to be a part of that? And he was a part of that uh, uh, group that did all the murders, the misinformation, and what have you. And so he was kind of like a whistleblower uh, in the FBI.
4: There's some awful uh, uh history of murder too.
6: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You had, you had Bobby Sill, who, and Erica Huggins, who were. Framed up for murder and, uh, of a comrade, uh, but was eventually found not guilty because of the agent provocateurs who were found. You also have, uh, Chicago where murdered Fred Hampton, who was murdered, 21 year old leader of the Black Panther Party, uh, because young man who stole a car, took it across state lines. Uh, the, the feds said, well, they'll make a deal with him if, uh, he works for them. He works his way up into the Black Panther Party security. And uh, he's the one who set up the whole uh, uh, operation in regards to giving them all this misinformation about all these guns. The stuff was at the house where Fred Hampton was and when they did the murder. However, you're
4: here today to pass on your message.
6: Uh Yes, I'm here today to pass on the message, uh, yes, and there are mes- a message that that uh, continues to need uh, passing on because you still have over 20 Panthers who are still incarcerated as political prisoners in the United States. You just have one Panther, Eddie Conway, who just got out after 44 years in prison. You still have Momia, Momia Abu-Jamal, who's a Panther at a very young age, who's incarcerated, and many, many more who are, are still incarcerated today. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton,
7: and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its Radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles.
4: So please listen to 3CR. Hi, brother Murray
8: and I'm taking it back to the days when they never even heard
4: <laughs> it's wonderful, Lex Watton, and we've got a an interview that we did with Lex Watton, which uh, we'll save up and uh, let people hear the details of uh, how Lex Watton was uh, became the only person who got arrested uh, in relation to what happened in Palm Island when uh, the tall man and uh, the uh, fellow that was that died uh, meet his end.
5: Yeah, and I would really recommend that you listen to it because this man really is a freedom fighter. Hearing his story is just incredible. I heard him speak about a year ago
4: about it. Yeah, he is. He's an extraordinary fellow. Anyway, uh, you're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we were just listening to Emery Douglas, who was, as he said, uh, an ex-Black Panther, and he was the uh, Minister for Culture for the uh, world that they believed that they were moving towards. Mm. Yeah, and uh, that leads to our next... uh, uh, interview, which is uh, and uh, the next stage of the uh, political struggle that is going on in America at the moment.
5: Yeah, we're going to be listening to Currie Peterson-Smith, who's, as you'll find out, he'll introduce himself as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. But um, him and Emery Douglas, and, um, Emery Douglas got to um, speak to each other um, at the Marxism Conference and obviously back in America as well. So there's a lot of um, amazing communication going on there with activists, um, well, I can't say past and present because there's still as we heard black panthers in jail,
4: yeah, that's right, and I was quite shocked to to realize just it's how alive this this issue really is the uh, and it it, it is uh, as we saw in what happened on may the first here with the big march in Melbourne and all over the place all over Australia I mean even down in a very conservative town Warrnambool, where I grew up, there was a uh, a much about the closures in Western Australia. Uh you, people might know that uh Warrnambool is one of the near the site of one of the uh the uh, places where Aboriginal people were um settled, resettled, uh Framlingham. So you've got uh, Lake Tyres in East Gippsland and you've got uh, uh Framlingham in the Western District. These were two places and Lake Condor which is not too far away, it's on the other side uh, and there 's a there 's a few other there 's another place further down near hayfield where people Aboriginal people from many places because as we know uh, Australia is um, actually divided up into many clan groups, and there were many languages of aboriginal peoples and this fight back that 's going on at the moment. Uh, is a struggle for uh, connection to land.
5: Mm. And culture as well. I think it's quite fitting that we were speaking to the Minister for Culture because at the moment that's exactly what they're trying to wipe out is any trace of Indigenous culture. Yeah, exactly. So let's go on and listen
4: to uh, what Corey Pe- Peterson um, has to say. And as uh, uh, as uh, Kim said, he does introduce himself so you can find out uh, what we're talking about.
1: My name is Karee Peterson-Smith. I'm from Boston in the USA. I'm part of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm part of a group in the US called the International Socialist Organization. I'm here at Marxism 2015 in Melbourne.
5: Uh, When I heard you speak at opening night Mm -hmm. at Marxism 2015, you said that the day that you arrived in Australia, a young black man was killed in Boston. Yeah. Uh, Angelo West. Would you be able to tell us about that?
1: Well, it's it's hard to know too much because I'm so far away. What might be useful actually is to tell you about why it's so difficult to know exactly the details and why i 've been reluctant to say too much about it because about what exactly transpired because you really have to be present to see what happened in the case of Angelo West is uh, what usually happens, which is the the cops killed this man, and uh, as I mentioned on opening night, a police officer was also shot um, who was not killed he was, and he was taken to the hospital um, and a bystander was shot as well um, in in, what, in the, the melee. Um, and so they were removed. Angelo's body was, was lying there on the ground. And then when, particularly when, um, you know, when the cops put out a, a call on their radio that says shots fired, but especially when they say officer down, which is what happens, because a cop was shot, all the police in the area fly to this location. Um, and so they, they flood it with, um, with cars and they set up a huge cordon. They push everybody out of the out of the area and set up you know, a police line where you can't enter. So what happened in the case of Angelo West, again, typical, is that the media showed up, news media showed up, and the police said, We'd like we'd like you to leave, actually, go to the hospital where this officer is um, has, has been hospitalized. And the media said, Okay. And they all left. And so there is some footage of cops physically pushing um, people out of the the area of the cordon physically, you know, punching and hitting activists. But this is captured on activist cell phone video because there were no media present. So that's, that's why it's difficult to know, um, you know, what exactly has happened with, with Angelo West. I mean, that, it, it points to the significance of people who live in the communities where victims of police violence are from speaking out about what's happened so somebody usually comes forward and says no what they said on the news is wrong this is what happened their families come forward and they say that's you know what they're saying on the news is wrong this is what's happened um, that's usually 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 how it works. Um, and, and so people, you know, your listeners will be familiar with the case of Michael Brown, who was killed in Ferguson. And of course, the, the police narrative was that Michael Brown, you know, basically picked a fight with this officer that he tried to grab the officer's gun and shoot at, at, at Darren Wilson. And as we know, you know, what really happened is that Michael Brown was saying, my hands are up, don't shoot, right? Well, that knowledge, that, that his last words are, my hands are, don't, don't shoot, came from eyewitnesses who spoke out. And so what's happening now in Boston is is activists are working with the family of Angelo West and working with um, people who live in the neighborhood to organize, and part of that organizing should be putting out a counter-narrative of, of what's happened.
4: This is very similar to uh, the work that's been done in, or, or used to be done, and I presume still being done in South American countries, yeah where uh, people are doing um, interviews in order to be able to put the record straight. And does that mean that you have a particular unit that does that?
1: Right. Not yet. There's been um, some conversation in, um, in some of the groups that are, uh, that are, that are doing black lives matter stuff in Boston where I live about, you know, can we assemble a group of investigators, you know, for our side be, because, you know, Angelo was killed in a, in a black neighborhood. Um, but a month or so ago, there was somebody shot and killed by the cops in, in Boston in a largely white neighborhood. And, you know, I mean, I, I happened to be in the neighborhood at the time and I saw, you know, the area was, was flooded with cops. Like I said, is, is typical it happens. And I saw the police line where they weren't letting anybody in. And it was kind of on the news that, that there was what they call an officer-involved shooting um, and that somebody was killed, and then the story disappeared. Nobody came forward with any details about what happened or the circumstances under which this person were killed or anything like that. So we've talked about, you know, can we try to figure out how to systematically find out what happens in a case like this? But that's really, it's an idea right now that that we want to see if we can make real.
5: I wanted to ask you about the shut it down movement because to me I think that, that sounds incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's something, um, it's it's so, it reflects a certain militancy that the, you know, the mood of the movement has been, not just do we want to protest the police killing of black people, but we want to disrupt American society in some way to uh, say that you won't have business as usual as long as this is happening. And to understand why um, it, it kind of, erupted in such a militant way. I think you have to actually look at the past few years. A lot of people when um, when we were watching what was happening in Ferguson unfold on people's minds was not just the case of Michael Brown but was also the case of Trayvon Martin who was killed a few years ago. You know people know that it's this, this black teenager who was stalked um, and, and murdered by this this racist vigilante and You know, when that happened, there were protests around the country. You know, there were there were marches, and I mean, they weren't they weren't they by and large were not disruptive. And in fact, people said, "Let's let the system do its job, right? So let's see if they actually arrest George Zimmerman." Well, that took a month to do. They finally arrested him, Um, and then he went to trial. And everybody thought, "Well, the evidence is so obvious. I mean, he admitted to doing the crime that he's going to be convicted," and he wasn't. He was acquitted. So I think that the experience of seeing the legal system absolutely fail in such, a, in such a spectacular way under a black president with a black head of the Department of Justice. You know, there's this idea that, I mean, it's been a pretty disappointing experience living under Obama, and things have actually got, been especially bad for black people, um, somewhat ironically. But the idea was like, this is this kind of iconic example of American racism and, like, Southern American racism. You know, at least they'll throw us a bone and let you have George Zimmerman be convicted, and that wasn't the case, which is why I think there was such bitterness and militancy at the start of this latest wave.
5: I had a question about the non-indictment of the police officer that killed um, Mike Brown, yeah. um, and how prepared do you think the state was for that non-indictment?
1: You mean for the protests that came? You know, it, it, it seems to me that they did a lot of preparation. What, what happened was was the governor of Missouri, Jay Nixon, basically says, yeah, and anti- we are anticipating the release of the, the decision. We're not going to tell you what it is. Of course, we don't know. We have no idea what it might be, but it might be something that provokes protests, and therefore we're going to go ahead and declare a state of emergency beforehand. So they took a week, you know. I mean, there's these... These uh, press photos of the Governor sitting down in front of a crowd of national guardsmen, like soldiers in uniform, basically preparing them. there was all this footage on the news of these um, stores in Ferguson put boarding up their their windows um, in anticipation of of you know people smashing windows or whatever which which Lent itself to more state preparation, saying, "Oh my goodness, you know these black people are going to freak out; they're going to break stuff. So we've really got to get the cops ready." And then, as I said, um, as I said last night, the FBI put out a bolt into every police department in the country, saying that they should be on alert; that they should they should anticipate threats to private property and to law enforcement. And so, I think that they really did quite a lot of work to prepare, and it, it, it was it was that preparation was very coordinated. The fact that when those protests happened, there were not mass arrests, I think also speaks to a certain level of coordination behind the scenes, like the effect of mobilizing the police and the National Guard and getting, you know, university administrations on board in in the city of Boston where I live to participate with the police, to cooperate with the police, to go after any students who, you know, did anything that was impermissible or whatever. The effect was not only to, to prepare but it was to intimidate people from mobilizing anyway. The idea was, oh, man, I'm not going to go out. Look, they've got the army. They've got tear gas. When people went out anyway, and, I mean, that, that, as, as, I, as, I, as I said in my speech, this was nights and days of people shutting down highways day after day, night after night, and there could have been mass arrests nationwide. There could have been mass beatings nationwide. The fact that there were not suggests to me that, again, the FBI, which coordinated the preparation, also somebody gave the war in the federal government saying, stand down. Because what happened in Ferguson was such a, it's so it opened something up that the government had lost control of, and I think they were afraid of provoking, or further opening things up. So the idea was let them blow off steam, you know, they'll have a night of protests. Well, we had weeks of protests, (laughs) you know, we had months of protests. (laughs)
5: I was wondering how important is the oppression of black people to the US ruling class and how scared are they of the black struggle inspiring everyone else?
1: Historically, it has been... um it's been their their number one tool. I mean, they have so many tools to divide the working class um, and to uh, to make the U.S. what it is. You know, I always think about how like the U.S. is the most pop- or the most um, powerful country in the world. That w- that is isn't accidental. <laughs> the people who run it have honed um, some ways of, of of running it and anti-black racism is absolutely central. And, you know, I'll just put it this way because I think that it, um, it gets right to the heart of the matter. Black people have been at the bottom of U.S. society for three or 400 years. So looking at that, you can either conclude there's something wrong with black people or there's something wrong with U.S. society. What they want us to conclude is that there's something wrong with black people. But when black people fight back, you know, it, it, it exposes it kind of strips away what the U.S. says about being the world's greatest democracy, about being this post-racial society, um, and it exposes the truth. I think that's what was so powerful about the images coming out of Ferguson, particularly for people who are not black, because the country is so segregated that you know, if, if, you, if you don't live in a black neighborhood, you don't realize how incredibly repressive it is, the extensive surveillance apparatus, the daily harassment, the daily police violence, and so to see people having a nonviolent march and facing heavily armed soldiers pointing automatic weapons at them, it was shocking in a way that exposed the U.S. for what it is. Here in 2015, the 21st century, in this former slave state, we're still dealing with this level of violence, and that's why while they are afraid of black protest, they're ultimately really afraid of that protest mobilizing people beyond the black population and that turning into a generalized class struggle in the U.S. So that is, it's, it's, it's been, you know, one of their greatest fears. It, it's, it's why they designed the country as, um, as, as they did in so many ways to deal with then an enslaved black population and then ever since then a black population that one way or another has been at the bottom.
4: When that governor, the Missouri governor, came out, and uh, there was uh, the ridiculous, well, seems to me, ridiculous outcome Mm -hmm. to the legal process. One of the things he did talk about was the investigation into the basically corrupt nature of the police force Mm -hmm. uh, in that state where black people were being um, targeted and that there were quite clear evidence of targeting and that uh, small crimes well you know like even tickets right, you know exactly. car tickets you know right. and things like that were escalating into ridiculous levels of uh, punishment and that uh, police were actually vying with each competing with each other to see who could get the um, the most amount of citations with right. each uh, so as you were saying th- this is really talking about a fundamental level of disrespect and corruption within the American state that's based on race?
1: Yeah, I mean, racism, you know, racism operates in any number of ways, you know, black unemployment is consistently higher than the national average, and consistently around twice white unemployment. Actually, you know, the number of, of black men in prison exceeds the number of black men in college. You know, one in three black men at some point in their lifetime can expect to have some kind of incarceration. You know, which is to say that there are many forms of or many ways that institutional racism expresses itself. But the- uh,
4: and average wages. Every wage is always lower.
1: Absolutely. I mean, lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality rate. The criminal justice system is the cutting edge of institutional racism. After the rebellion in Ferguson, it's interesting because there was was a bit of a national conversation around what went wrong in Ferguson, which on one hand was problematic because it tried to isolate the question of police racism and violence to Ferguson. And it's not a problem with Ferguson. it's It's a problem with the United States. But it actually yielded some really interesting reporting so you have all these media go to ferguson and do investigations that then find out wow it means so the the, the city plans its budget based on a tremendous amount of revenue that it just steals from black people in the form of citations right so that kind of thing is really useful to see how police harassment plays out in one city what we need to do now is generalize that and see how it plays out in all the cities because as i said the the police violence might take slightly different forms in different places but it exists throughout the country
5: i just had a final question about the places that you receive solidarity i heard that you got some solidarity from palestine if you could tell us about that
1: yeah um during the during the uprising in ferguson uh, Palestinians on Twitter sent these these great tweets of, of encouragement and also tips for how to deal with tear gas to people in ferguson there were also uh, last summer there were not one but two statements of solidarity from um, from prominent Palestinian activists located in Palestine in solidarity with with ferguson so that that you know that 's really uh, incredible and and then um Activists in Hong Kong also um, did the hands up, don't shoot gesture um, that that showed a certain kind of um, identification with the black struggle in the United States. I have to say, too, I'm really I've been just um, I mean, there's something striking and and really touching about the level of solidarity that I've experienced here in Australia. Um, I'm kind of shocked by how closely people are following the situation. Because in the US, of course, black people and black struggle are marginalised. You know, we're, we're told that we're this problem that should not that should be ignored. And so to come here and see leftists who have been following so closely, and are so um, who identify with the black struggle in such a deep way is profoundly heartening.
4: Yeah, well, there you go. That was um, Corey uh, Peterson Smith from Boston, who is part of Black Lives Matter. And it's hotting up, isn't it, Kim?
5: Yes, um well people would have heard about what's been going on recently in Baltimore after a full week of rebellion. Um they've actually got some results that they would not get through the and have not gotten through the legal system. Um it was announced on May 1st actually, um that charges against um that there will be charges laid against all of the police officers uh, involved in the murder of Freddie Gray, um including the person who was driving the vehicle basically they stuck him in the back and gave him a rough ride which was what ended up causing his death but all of them have been charged now I mean it's not the same as getting a conviction and that's going to need a whole lot more activism um, is what the people in Baltimore think
4: yeah. Oh, and I should um, tell people that uh, if you, uh, we are on Solidarity Breakfast and it's Annie and Kim. And uh, normally at this time we would be listening to Marcus Harrington's Rank and File. But uh, Marcus is on holidays. And so, uh, no, we're not holding it. We're not uh, keeping it from you. We just uh, were unable to uh, get him off his lounge, lounge uh, to actually make a piece. He needed needed a break. So uh, we're talking about uh, black struggle and how it relates to uh, the capitalist system effectively and the oppression and colonisation of people's minds and mm-hmm. how this fight back is happening.
5: Well, exactly. The way that I think that capitalists use their legal system to deny any justice to black people is really just an indictment of the system because people in Baltimore, they're not just fighting for these police officers to be charged. They also want to get rid of a whole lot of unfair laws uh, that do things like place a statute of limitations on seeking charges against the police, uh, block citizen reviews and delay investigations by imposing a mandatory 10-day waiting period, which you can imagine they're waiting for the evidence to dissolve, I imagine.
4: It's interesting, too, that as we were discussing this, that uh, people are asking um, Emery uh, Douglas, as well as uh, Corey, uh, who are both black uh, and who are activists, uh, about the issue of blackness. They are quite. They were quite clear that uh, it's a diversion. Uh, I mean, obviously, people have their culture, they have their uh, ties, they have their history, but th- this whole social and economic order has been used to. Uh, 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 they, this has used a, 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 dip, a obvious practical differentiation, i.e., color, as a method of uh, keeping people away from each other. And to a as and demarking the people who can be oppressed.
5: Exactly. And I think that the point with Baltimore is that this class divide has become so much clearer because most of the officialdom in Baltimore are black. You know, the National Guard, the head of the National Guard who's, you know, sending them in to oppress, the people of Baltimore is black, the mayor is black, um some of the police are black. And so it's been quite obvious to the people there that this is actually about class. And And system. And the the whole system. It's um, pretty shocking because people probably heard about the curfew that was imposed on the people of Baltimore from about 10pm in the morning until 5am. You weren't allowed to go out and you could be subject to arrest. And one of the activists was pointing out that, uh, well, actually, they ended up having to drop this curfew because it became politically unviable because the people of Baltimore kept protesting it and defying it. But the People who suffered the most under the curfew were working people because if you think about it, those people who work at night, who are working hourly rates, um, they couldn't get a living paycheck and you wonder how many people were thrown out of their houses during that curfew for not being able to make that week's rent.
4: I'll tell you something else that's really curious is that quite a few of the people who have taken the footage of the... uh, cause celebs these uh, deaths that have caused so much uh uh media notice like the uh, uh a lot of those people like the man who was choked by the police who was recorded on the phone mm. uh also the uh, there was another one recently uh these people have those people who have taken those recordings have actually themselves been arrested and have, are now within the uh, legal system based on some charge that's different and and unrelated to the uh, footage that they've taken, which to me, you know, uh, you can't say that there's a, a link, but, you know, you'd be suspicious.
5: Yes, I think too it shows that some people are saying that the solution is to put, to make police wear cameras. It's like, well, they are killing black people on camera and they're getting away with it, I think the solution is much, much more radical. It yeah.
4: it's outside you're on, the yeah, system, yeah. really. Anyway, you're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast. We're investigating uh, uh, the uh, black struggles that are happening in US and later on we're going to have a look at the uh, May Day march here in Melbourne and across the world, in fact, that are, are against the WA uh, closures and also a... Uh, The passing of the baton between the older generation of uh, Aboriginal activists and their new compatriots, the uh, young from uh, uh, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, as they call themselves. But before we go on to Kevin, and this is the week that was because he hasn't taken a holiday, uh, we're going to hear from The Clash.
2: A week, Solidarity Brecky Team Lister, when what a start to our day, what excitement. We will read one of the great breakthroughs in true blue Aussie literature, in true blue Aussie literary history, so hang in, because this is the product of one of the great socially conscious true blue Aussie minds. No, 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 not me, I know that's your immediate thought, but someone else. Yes, there's two of us, but first, not so good news. The latest crisis to hit the budget bottom line, the delicate flower that is the economy, is weak wage growth. Listener, why can't we see the problem? It's easily fixed. But seriously, it is a problem, isn't it? Wage increases are a major threat to the economy and non-wage increases are a major threat to the economy. It's such a delicate flower. Thank goodness we have all those experts to analyse it all, do the job for us. Like, following the interest rate cut, economic guru Joe Hackey, the worker, said he would be very, very angry if banks did not pass on the cut. I'll be very, very angry. He looked very, very determined. And if they still won't lower their rates by the appropriate amount, I'll be very angry, very angry. Yeah, yes, sure, Joe, but what will you do about it? I'll be very angry, very angry. Mmm, strong response. Let's hope for the bank's sake they do the right thing or they'll feel the sting of Joe's very angry, very angry. Well, they probably will do the right thing because when interest rates rise, they put them up by a couple of extra points retrospectively just to be safe. So being people of principle, we love principle, as much principle as possible. No, no, don't interrupt. I know you're excited, but different spelling. But being people of principle, they would reduce interest rates as fast as possible. Although, understandably, they would have to impose a reducing interest rates fee. We can't expect them to bear the costs which presumably involve a complicated expensive procedure like someone in some central point hitting a keyboard key. That very angry, very angry bit was one of the few comments we heard from Joey. It's an encouraging reflection that the kind, friendly, warm face of government is now the former minister for concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, and now minister for social insecurity, scuttle them more no less, son. What's that say about the rest of them? having abandoned for the ideological reason that they couldn't get making the most disadvantaged pensioners pay for the great corporates minimising their tax liabilities like paying none, quite legally of course, and now abandoning the rich who have been receiving a pension thanks to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last even darker ages, we would expect the Socialist Party, the offender of those most disadvantaged, the enemy of the wealthy, to welcome the change. This proposal, Socialist Party, Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Bill Shorten Ambition, looked very concerned, very sincere. Shows this is a government that has no regard for the rich. This is a government prepared to attack the wealthy. Uh, So, Bill, the Socialist Party supports the wealthy. We support anyone this government doesn't support. Uh, But what about principle, policies based on principle? Principle, principle... Could you spell it? <laughs> no, seriously, that is our principle. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin did cover the big weekend event, both leading up to, as we mentioned last week, and subsequently, lots of human beings racing a steam engine. And with the other big, big, world shattering weekend event, poor Lord Rupert couldn't find even an inch to mention May Day. Yet, even given the advances in technology, the Lord Rupert team conducted the fastest and no doubt the most comprehensive national survey ever undertaken. Monday P1, Royal Cutie, against a red background. Maybe that was their reference to May Day. The world has welcomed a new princess, and true blue Aussie has already fallen in love with her. They must have worked their guts out Sunday to find that out and to think... I can't speak for you, but I had no idea I'd fallen in love with this one-day-old new burden on the taxpayers until Lord Rupert told me. I think it's for the best, though, that we let Lord Rupert think for all of us, and, well, the International Workers' Day only serves to remind us how evil and lazy and avaricious unions and workers are. Then several pages. Hello, little bundle of joy. But the real international impact of our new national foreign in love headline across two pages. The tweet that changed the world. Imagine the excitement in those earthquake-ravaged Nepalese villages. This takes away all the pain. The world is a different place. Our little bundle of joy, royal cutie. We wish her a long life at the expense of the lucky, lucky taxpayers. Our troubles are over. Still on, our favourite media baron commentator on this station said yesterday, the whop- yesterday's whopping sit had only devoted half its front page to sport. I disagree. The other half screamed, Cops, jihad alert! 13,000 <coughs> given new terror warning. 30 Islamic State recruiters enlisting young true blue Aussies. Which to the whopping sit is sport. Daily sport. Islamic terror on the playing field. So I'd argue it was a 100%. Or conversely, sport is their politics of diversion, so it was a hundred percent politics. Take your pick. But now the big one, the literary masterpiece, poetry in motion, poetry emotion. This is so beautiful, Listener. Perhaps the ultimate capture of the true Blue Aussie spirit. It's called Our Future. The globe is sadly groaning with debt, poverty and strife, and billions now are pleading to enjoy a better life. Their hope lies with resources buried deep within the earth, and the enterprise and capital which give each project worth. Is our future threatened with massive debts run up by political hacks, who dig themselves out by unleashing rampant tax? The end result is sending Australian investment, growth and jobs offshore. This type of direction is harmful to our core. Some envious, unthinking people have been conned to think prosperity is created by waving a magic wand. Through such unfortunate ignorance, too much abuse is hurled against miners, workers and related industries who strive to build the world. Develop North Australia, embrace multiculturalism, and welcome short-term foreign workers to our shores to benefit from the export of our minerals and ores. The world's poor need our resources. Do not leave them to their fate. Our nation needs special economic zones and wiser government before it is too late. Wasn't that beautiful, listener? Isn't that absolutely beautiful? Isn't it just stunning? By um, Perhaps the ultimate capture of the true blue spirit, in fact, as I said. But you may already know that literary giant, Gina, Gina Grindhart, expressing her concern for the world's poor. Well, we know that because she wants to make them rich on a happy, happy $2 a day. There's no doubt she's headed straight to the World Literary Hall of Fame, a, a Nobel Literature laureate bids. OK, so the meter might have been a bit out in the odd line, like as many lines as there are, but doesn't such a thoughtful sediment like, develop North Australia, embrace multiculturalism, and welcome short-term foreign workers to our shores to benefit from the export of our minerals and ores? Shores, ores, wonderful rhyming, amply compensate through the sediment, a uh, sorry, sediment, for the atrocious lack of meter. Gina is so taken with her own skills, apparently, this literary gem is etched into some lump of our resources out the front of her Perth headquarters so the passing world can both admire it and learn where our great country ought to be going. Well, it's the Gina's of this world who know where this great country ought to be going, as they tell us what infrastructure we need to get the old economy rolling along, for without their advice, governments may unlikely but may, make the mistake of building infrastructure that benefits the community and does nothing to bolster the pockets of the great corporates who know what infrastructure we need. Like, transfer the public purse to us urban, telling the state socialist government it is happy to provide a new freeway in western Melbourne for no greater reward for the sheer altruism of the government handing it the public purse. Leave the planning to us, the great corporates advise, and limit the government role to funding our investment. And how dare people suggest there was something amiss with the transfer of the public purse lobbyists being ex advisers to the Socialist Party ministers, just an example of the company's great community responsibility. Oh, and on the great responsible corporates, the parties that matter are reaching agreement on the renewable energy target. The target, they chorused, is to preserve the environment of the great fossil corporates to ensure the future of good, good, lifting the world out of poverty, coal. Before they agreed, the risk was we could end up with all this renewable energy. And on that happy note, and getting back to our new literary giant, Finally, I hope we all have as happy a day tomorrow as the fun, fun, fun Mother's Day they'll be having at Gina's. Good morning.
4: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast here on this Saturday morning and you're with Annie and Kim.
5: Yes, hi everyone.
4: Yeah, that's right. And uh, we're running into the last half hour of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And as we promised, we're going to uh, follow our inspection of what's going on in America with Black Lives Matter, with uh, uh, what's happening in Australia and uh, highlighting what happened at the uh, May 1st march in Melbourne, which was a mammoth march. And uh, people uh, congregated and sat for many hours, sitting on the uh, intersection between Flinders Street and Swanson Street, uh, in a almost like a co-operative, really, because the uh, organisers uh, War uh, of Aboriginal Resistance had organised uh, quite extensive. Uh, things. Uh, There were several um, Aboriginal dance troops who danced, there were um, men and women, Uh, there were uh, speakers, many speakers, there were even uh, people who came from Western Australia to speak and thank people for coming out to uh, support the struggle for the stopping of the closures in Western Australia. And I'll sort of point out that uh, the it wasn't just Western Australia that were told that they were come they needed to close the uh, uh, communities in uh, the isolated uh, uh, Aboriginal communities. It was also South Australia, and you'll notice that South Australia hasn't hit the, hit the uh, headlines in relation to this issue mm-hmm. because South Australia hasn't chosen to do it.
5: Right. Well, I suppose they're sitting back and waiting to see what happens in WA as they are around the rest of the state, seeing what they can get away with, which is why I think the whole shut it down, we're going to shut down the city is such a good idea. I mean, last night I was out um, collecting petitions for this issue and it seemed that everyone had, well, they'd either been to the protest or they had noticed them, you know, for hours on a Friday night. This is a really good technique, I think
4: well it's fascinating, and uh they uh ratcheted it up and uh went down after that particular congregation down to king's what do they call it king's reserve it's anyway it's a bit for, all those pieces of uh, greenery cross the road uh you know the botanical gardens you go down um across uh, Yarra River then you it's all running acro- uh, alongside uh, over the road from the national uh Gallery and further down, they've all got names, you know, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but anyway, I think it's called the King's Reserve. They took that over, and for a couple of days, they spent time there. Uh, at- with speakers and music and uh, basically creating a community spirit. And it was like an extension of what happened in uh, Brisbane during the uh, G20. Across the road from the G20 building, there was actually an alternative summit. And this was called by uh, Brisbane Blacks. And uh, and in a way, this is a, a, a continuation of that uh, launching pad of Warriors uh, mm. of Aboriginal Brazil.
5: It always bends your mind too, because when you talk about these occupations, it's like, how can you occupy your own land? Yeah, well,
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they didn't ask for permission. That was what uh, the uh, uh, Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance said uh, on the night. We're not asking for permission. This is our land.
5: We have sovereignty.
4: Yeah, we have sovereignty. Anyway, so... uh, I think we'll start off with um the piece I put together that uh, has a few vox pop has you know this was only this is only a, a mere speck of uh, an, an event that went on for hours it does include the uh, speech that uh, Gary Foley uh gave but the it um and it highlights the uh move from uh, the uh n- 1960s uh revolutionary push into a new phase of Aboriginal resistance. How are you feeling with all these people turning up?
3: We feel wonderful. We've
4: travelled from the country for today and we're glad we did it. <laughs> good on you. How are you guys feeling about being here today? Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling Robbie? How you going? Good. How's, how are you feeling? Uh, very good. I think it's um, very, uh, been going very well so far. We've been about an hour into our, our um, rally at the moment and um, it's all going very well very um, cordial it's, um, it's, it's good um, sort of recognition from the sides here The people aren't really concerned about what we're doing and uh, sort of, you feel a support there on the sides of the, the, sides of the uh, road there so it sort of counters a bit what uh, Andrew Bolt was saying about this is a, an act of aggression and contempt in fact that's what they are about the system's about aggression and contempt. They're yeah, the aggressors here. Uh, this is um, an organic statement from the people, who have had enough. And that's, what it's, that's, that's what's happening. And as they continue to stomp on our communities, well, this is going to continue to happen in, in terms of what we can do to stop their cities. So, sooner or later, it's going to come to a head, isn't it? <laughs>
4: What's your feelings about it? Shame!
7: Oh, pretty shameful, really. Um, if they close down, any community will be protesting and shutting down Melbourne as we do it.
8: Always will be!
4: And what about uh, passing the baton to these young
7: uh, Look, I'm a great believer in that. Um, even with uh, Radio Annie, uh, I'm handing it over to the younger generations with the 40th coming up next year, and um, I hope they will take it forward just like these young people here are doing. Very proud of Always was. Always will be. Always was. Always will be.
8: Always Always will be. Always was. 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 Always will be. Always 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 Always
7: The I'd like audience, to also the acknowledge today, it's been our own country today too. So. Uh, everyone should. up! Mobs, uh, really the and okay, I want to congratulate everyone. the young organisers of this here. a big job. It's really, you've got no idea how encouraging it is for some of us old mob to see such a gathering as this here today. It was 50 years ago, 50 years ago this month. Happy May Day, folks. It was 50 years ago this month that I saw Charlie Perkins' Freedom Ride come through the town I was living in, in northern New South Wales. That was one of the things that put the fire in my belly when I was young, it really saddens me that here we are 50 years later and we're still out there fighting for justice. So I'd say, I'd say to all you young people who are here today, you've got to maintain the rage, you've got to maintain the energy because it's going to be a long, hard struggle. Earlier today in Redford in Sydney, there was a special memorial for another strong fighter for justice, Mr. Ray Jackson. Ray Jackson was the other grandfather to two of my granddaughters. He was a fighter who fought all of his life. But the sad thing is, like all Aboriginal political activists since the beginning of the 20th century, or for that matter, since the original invasion, all people who have fought for justice (coughs) have died knowing that their life work ultimately came to nothing. This is the lesson that needs to be learnt in terms of staying in the struggle for the long term. Today is not just about the brutal closure of communities in Western Australia. There are a multitude of issues that have brought us here today. One of the most important is that the jails of this country are full of blackfellas. I'm mm-hmm. the people of Melbourne, and that includes all the people that are here today, all the Aboriginal people, all the non-Aboriginal people. You are what makes this city so good to live in.
8: Yeah.
7: Yeah. We always have that there's a turnout in these sort of numbers for this sort of issue. All you gotta do is keep the struggle going. Keep the struggle going yeah. until we win. Yeah.
8: Yeah. Always, yeah. wants, always, always moving. <inaudible> land, oh Always, wants, always moving. Always, always moving. Always, always
3: moving. Community up in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. The nation and we're standing here today with you all they said to me we we can't go on being silent we have to do something so we went ahead and we did it and in six days we got everybody together and 25,000 people marched across this country The size of the 24th largest city in Australia. Yeah. With a reach of four million, we're the biggest city in this country. Yeah. 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 Humanity speaks and it speaks loud and it comes straight from country, as you heard from our elders at Andy. Our mob need us, and they need us to be strong, and they need us to continue, as Uncle Gary said are rich in culture our lands are rich in minerals draw your own conclusion right there as to why they want our country but we've always been sovereign nations and we stand strong at that so when we voted no confidence in the state and federal <coughs> governments that is sticking and its binding and what that means as Indigenous people of this country, that it's our time to rise up as sovereign nations. We're all sitting back waiting to be invited to the table. Our table has been set from the beginning of time. And we take that from the ground up and we bring everyone up with us. In peaceful process we stand in solidarity with the union movements. With our Māori whānu, who've travelled over here from New Zealand with the six actions that happened in Aotearoa today, to the actions that happened in Puerto Rico, in, New- in some of the smallest towns in Ningalinda, the tri-state region of this country stood up today. We're loud, we're proud, we're 93 actions across this world on the 1st of May. This is history! last night the Minister Helen Morton Minister of Racism from the State Government of Racism from the Country of Racism decided to say that we're a project we're not a project we're proud people she also went on to say that this is not negotiable we're saying it's not negotiable our terms are fixed it's a vote of no confidence Australia from being here. Uh, there's plenty of work ahead. We've just been setting up in the back end the humanitarian program that will start to run and deliver action on the ground so that we can become our most sustainable communities for a very long time. And on that we start to name our terms and our conditions as you heard in the Callax statement. Yeah.
4: Come to the end of the program, really. We've got about six minutes to go, Kim, mm. on Solidarity Breakfast.
5: Well, that was just inspiring, I think. If you're not inspired by those fiery orators and that beautiful song, I don't know what will get you along to the next rally.
4: Yeah, and there certainly will be another rally. Uh, that's, that was the May, the first rally in Melbourne uh, around, uh, well, they were interested in shutting Melbourne down, getting people to sit down and uh, talk Aboriginal business. And they certainly got thousands of people out there to do it.
5: So keep tuning in to 3CR to he- hear the announcement for the next rally.
4: Yes, that's right. And it was inspiring to hear older Aboriginal activists passing on and giving praise to the new round of... Uh, uh, activism coming out of uh, warriors of Aboriginal resistance. It's quite uh, clear that uh, things are afoot in Australia and in America, in other places. Uh, things uh, aren't going to settle down. First Nations are on the move.
5: Mm, and from little things, big things grow.
4: Yeah. There's a couple of uh, announcements I want to make. Uh, first, uh, Stop the War on the Poor, the uh, meeting uh, that is that's been called on the steps of the State Library 11am Wednesday the 20th of May. I may have done a bit of a slip up in my announcements. I think I started off on the 20th of May and then ended up on the 28th for some reason or other. But it is the 20th of May at 11am outside the State Library steps to... uh uh Announce your displeasure at the attacks on age pensioners, unemployed people, and single parents. Uh, that's it's just not on, and uh, politicians need to pull up their socks. Basically,
5: mm.
4: what are they there for? Uh, of...
5: To abuse us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's the impression
4: I'm getting. Yeah, a bit of uh, uh there's um, a book launch May the twenty second, six pm at the Collingwood uh, Gallery. That's two hundred and ninety two Smith Street beating the big end of town how a community defeated the east west toll road it's uh been written by one of the uh key organizers anthony main and uh he's what was one of the spokespeople of the community campaign so he is launching his book may the 22nd 6 p.m collingwood gallery 292 smith street in good old collingwood uh there's uh there was uh, there was another uh, major thing that happened this week, which was the change in the leadership of the Greens.
5: Yes, that was a a bit of a. Well, I think that people had been talking about how Christine Milne was just a transitional figure, but I was a a little kind of put out by the fact that they sort of seemed to sideline Adam Bant.
4: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they're, but and but you have to admit that they do actually have quite a few people that could have filled their uh, those uh, seats, unlike the major parties or what, what are called the major parties. The Greens are actually quite uh, stand behind their notion of uh, you know passing on the baton as well to younger generation. And uh, they've got some pretty solid uh, players. And as you say, Adam Band is a solid player. There are other ones as well. But uh, they've also done something interesting. Uh, Senator Richard D'Antali is the new leader, but they've got, he's got co-deputies. I didn't know anything about Senator Larissa Waters, but I certainly did know about Senator Scott Ludlam.
5: Yes, of um, internet fame.
4: Yeah, but I'll tell you something interesting before we get out of here and let uh, Asia-Pacific currents take the mic. Rest it from us. Um, I was absolutely blown away by the Twitter that was uh, put out by um, uh, Kevin Andrews' office in relation to the Greens. Uh, His Twitter said, does it really matter who will lead the freedom-hating Greens? Their anti-family and and community-destroying policies remain?
5: That's how I feel it's about outrageous. the liberal party. <laughs> I know,
4: isn't it outrageous? I mean, he doesn't. He, this is the right-wing uh, publicity agenda that comes out of America. Just say whatever you uh, will uh, affect someone's prejudices, and you don't have to approve a thing. Unbelievable.
5: Yes, it is. George Scary Orwell to lives. have that kind of politics coming to Australia.
4: Yeah, George Orwell lives. Anyway, we're going to go out with the Clash again, and uh, the same song, just because I like it, and we'll get out of uh, the way for yet. Uh, Pacific currents. This, this is Annie saying goodbye.
5: And Kim, have a good morning.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to dot crorgau